Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher, and today I have Bianca Kramer of Chelsea Staging. Hey, Bianca, how are you today? Good, how are you? I'm great. You know, let's start off by saying, where did you grow up? I grew up uh, in California, and after college, I moved to New York and have been here ever since. I've moved around the country a couple of times and abroad once, but mostly New York. Well, why, now you say you moved to New York. Were you, um, did you come directly to the Hamptons or did you go to New York City or? No, I didn't even know of the Hamptons at that point. I uh, went directly to New York City and um, found a job and and uh, everything started from there. Great. What, what, what kind of job were, did you uh, get? When you know, interesting came? enough, I started, you know, I have a degree in psychology. So I started my um, career in human resources and uh, focused mainly in uh, the employee relations area, uh, which was wonderful. But after several years, it became very draining emotionally because I couldn't solve every problem in the world. I'm a big problem solver. And um, and I was invited to uh, join a team of creative people at a fashion house and thought maybe marketing was a better, um, better road for me. Wow. Wonderful. Uh, so what led you to this business, to uh, staging? Staging. Interesting enough, um, when I started in um, marketing at a uh, retail house, I I actually started as a um, as a set designer and uh, really junior set designer. But I worked with several brands, and that sort of gave me the intrigue for home design. I've always loved it. Never really went into it. Actually, my career really moved into marketing. So I've really been mostly in marketing in different industries for many years. But in the background, I've always always loved interior design and um, staging my own homes for my own sales. And also when I moved abroad, helping people set up their homes when they they arrived in their new city. So it was always sort of a passion for me. But when I started uh, uh, working with uh, Chelsea Staging, that was probably seven years ago. My very good friend in London um, called me and said, Bianca, I want to start a business. She mentioned uh, staging. I had, you know, I wasn't really sure, but I thought, okay, that seems like a good business. I did some research on London at that point um, really was a very small market for stagers uh, unless you were staging, a, you know, a very huge property. Um, this type of staging that she was thinking about was a, a little bit more attainable where you'd go in and refresh a place and, and help someone sell it or rent it out. And we started seven years ago and together in seven years, we built a pretty good business. That's fantastic. Um, you know, I was just thinking, um, is it any different in London staging as compared to, say, staging here in the States? You know, very different. And that's actually what was a big learning curve for me. Um, there, most of the uh, clients um, who have rentals, for example, they would they 
um, they invite us to stage our property um, um, for the rental, which is it's very different than here. If you rent a property, you don't usually have it staged, but there they ask you to stage it fully and um, mainly for images uh, for their marketing. But also they they leave a lot of the items in the home, the bed, the table, the chairs. So they give us a budget to buy uh, product and leave in the home. So that's something that's very different. Um and home staging in homes that are occupied, um, a lot of times it's pretty much what we're doing here, which is you repurpose what people already have. Um, very rarely do you come in and take all the furniture out and then, you know, bring in all your new furniture. And, you know, the other thing in London, too, um, excuse me, John, one more thing, um, why it's different as well is because of just the space. There isn't enough space to to actually um, hold a lot of items. So our warehouse in London is not very big and it has to be in central London because we're in Chelsea. So if we had to keep a lot of furniture in there, it would be very expensive and we'd have to have it have our um, uh, our storage room further out, which would make it complicated when we have a when we have a place to stage. Hmm. Okay. I know um, in California, especially in the Bay Area of California, mm-hmm. you know, agents refuse to take a listing unless they're staged. However, here in the Hamptons, um, can you explain why it's been so slow to adopt staging? I mean, uh, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, you know, I, I've lived in uh, San Francisco as well, and I've been in one of the I've been on the side of the cellar where the agent said you you have to stage it. And they came to look at my house and they said, oh, we don't need a stager. We're fine. But typically you are required to stage or they won't sign the contract, which is interesting here. I find when I've met with agents and um, when I've talked to other stagers, um, I, it seems like there's a there's sort of this misconception about what staging is. And a lot of times it's a very expensive sort of um, endeavor and people sort of move away from that. Also, I think the explanation of the value isn't that well expressed. And sometimes it's the, the realtor explaining what it is. And, um, and then there's also the idea that there's the person that can just do it all themselves. Um, they're the realtor, they can do the staging, they can do it. And so there's that type as well. So, and because they've been doing it for a while, they, they know what they're doing, but I think that mostly it's just, um, just a misconception of what this business is. It's not, uh, no longer is it, you know, come in, remove everything, buy all new furniture, um, um, it's really more about just using what you have, repurposing it. Of course, if it's an um, uh, a vacant property, it's a little bit different. Um, but for mostly home sales, it's 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 something more simple. And I think people make it people assume it's more complicated. Well, you know, uh, when you say vacant, I was just thinking of uh, new construction. Mm-hmm. Um, do you sometimes just stage, say, the living area um, and maybe a bedroom? Uh, sometimes, I mean, in our situation, we've like recently we had a we had a um, developer buy 14 apartments and he wanted them fully staged um, their apartments for rent and each apartment uh, we we stage every room. So uh, except the bathrooms, obviously, but the kitchens were staged with certain things um, also table chairs. So it really all depends, but we're finding that a lot of times they take multiple pictures and they want different perspectives of the apartment. So they need a view of the dining room and, you know, the kitchen and the balcony. Sometimes we've even had to put um, outside furniture on the balcony. Hmm. I I imagine out here in the Hamptons, uh, 
you could also want to do that for um, patios and decks. Yes, I've seen that. And I've seen some beautiful work. Um, so yes, it's it's important because you want to highlight the most important part of the house. And out here, obviously, uh, the outdoor space is usually key. Right. You know, uh, I know you call yourself a home editor, and I find that fascinating. Uh, why so? I think because, again, I want to change the um, the definition of stager in our own way. Uh, Al and I, the founder of Chelsea Staging, always talk about that. You know, I think, again, the misconception of a stager, it, it, you know, people have this image of a very different person. And what we're saying, you know, it's really about editing. It's not about staging. We're about editing what you already have and, and curating the space. And I think that is more in line with how people view the world today in, on social media. It is all about curation and editing and um, not necessarily staging uh, a, a, an image. And what we're saying is we want you to, we include a lot of pieces when we, when we actually do our project. Okay. Um, that's fascinating. I, I was just thinking what, if you're going into um, uh, speak to a client about staging of the property, what are some of the benefits? I mean, a lot of people think, ah, oh, you know, just I'll move the sofa over there or I'll add a chair or, or take a chair away. And it's the, 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 you know, explain the benefits from the standpoint. Okay. Uh, when you sell the property, you're going to get X amount of dollars, probably much more than if you didn't stage the property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there first, I think I would say the most important benefit would be that you have amazing pictures <laughs> and images today are everything because people start looking online first. And if they don't see a great image of your place, or if they notice that one thing that you didn't realize was in your room, uh, they're going to focus on that and then not about your property. So you want a, a really beautiful image. And I think that's the most important benefit is you get great images. You know, because we know what we're doing. We go out there and we look at everything through a, uh, through a camera. You know, what is a camera picking up that most people won't notice? So the other thing, it's an amazing marketing tool for um, the realtor. I mean, it really is. Uh, you you have a lot of marketing tools that are provided um, by real estate agents, uh, agencies. Um, but I think the staging um, tool, uh, marketing tool is really important. And, and a lot of people don't realize that the value in it. And also, you know, there is a, um, I mean, there, there, there are statistics. I mean, there, you can have a return of over 300%, you know, if you, uh, if you stage a proper a property correctly. Well, that's a, that's a great percentage. Um, have you ever um, had someone say, I don't want to sell my property because it looks so good now it's been staged? Yes, I've had, you know, recently we had a client, um, this is a large property in New York City, uh, beautiful, um, they just spent millions of dollars on decor a couple of years ago, and they, they thought it looked perfect, but uh, through the lens of us of an stager editor um it there were a lot of things wrong with it um including the lighting including the colors i mean you know certain colors just won't appeal to people and we had to talk to them about depersonalizing it a bit and even though they made that investment um we we needed to explain to them that this is this is about selling your property and putting it out there in the best light and um you know after a couple of conversations they understood what we were talking about and we made a, we actually did a, um, we did some work in one room and as a sample. And when she saw the room, uh, the owner thought, okay, uh, you guys know what you're doing. So 
But she needed I'm to sure see you. She's one of those clients. <laughs> right. That's perfect. Um, so tell me, what differentiates uh, Chelsea Staging from other staging companies? Well, I would say every, every company has a perspective, but I think uh, we have a perspective that comes from experience. And we, uh, Al and I both have moved uh, multiple times, sold multiple homes, both have lived abroad and returned. I mean, there's a lot of experience in that. And um, I think we come about it from um, um, an uh, from an angle of understanding the customer as much as possible. Um, we do create these relationships with our customers that are long lasting and we've had several customers come back. And I think it's because we understand what they need and we're not very pushy. Right. So tell them this is what we can do for you. If you um, like that, wonderful. Excellent, excellent. Now let's fantasize for a moment. How, what would you describe as your ideal customer? Hmm. I think someone who is um, ready and willing to sell their home and who is uh, does not take things personally, who is uh, who understands that the buyer of their home is going to be different than who they are and what they might like. Um, and there are many people like that. We've met people and it's like, go ahead, do what you have to do. I know someone's not going to like this color. That's fine. It was something I selected. I'm sure someone else won't like it. You know, that is a perfect client who really gets it and also who understands the value. Um, really, this is about value. And I think because there's such a misconception about staging um, that it's very expensive or that most anyone can do it, um, I think, you know, the value has to be understood by the customer and, and the agent as well. You know, it's reinforced by the agent, which is always very positive. And I can say it's really great uh, for the agent, because we step in and we become the bad guy. You know, we are telling their client, by the way, that teal kitchen, you know, that teal kitchen might not be what you want or that orange sofa in the middle of, you know, in this dark room. You know, it just we are the people that say this needs to go. And the agent sort of just stands on the side and approves and, and also supports us. And that's also the best client when you have a great agent that's supporting you. Well, that's great. How can somebody, uh, if they had some more questions for you, how could they get in contact with you? Well, the best way to reach me is B Kramer, um, B um, Kramer at Chelsea staging us.com. Or you can call me at 631-382-0797. Those are both ways to get a hold of me. And um, yeah. Great. Bianca Kramer of Chelsea Staging, thank you for coming on the program and thank you for taking the time to listen to Real Life. Please stay tuned to Right Where You Are since we'll be right back with our next guest, New York State Assemblyman Fred Thiel. Welcome back to Real Life. And this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Assemblyman, New York State Assemblyman, I should say, Fred Thiel. Hi, Fred. How are you today? Hey, John. Good to talk to you. Likewise, likewise. You've been on the program a number of times. And uh, I always love having you back because uh, today I'd like to talk about affordable housing out here, especially on the East End. Uh, you've recently, to address the issue, you've introduced the Accessory Dwelling Unit Incentive Act. Can you tell us about that act, Fred? Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, accessory dwelling units, accessory apartments, as they're, you know, they're often referred to, are uh, a, a tool in the toolbox that we can use to try to address the just overwhelming need for affordable housing 
uh, not just on the East End, which, where I think, you know, it's at crisis proportions, but really across the state of New York. Um, and what's great about accessory apartments is that, you know, you don't have to build any great big new developments. You're talking about taking your existing housing stock and in areas where it's suitable, where perhaps there is the uh, um, you, you have larger houses or you're closer to downtown areas where there where there are services, et cetera, where it might be appropriate for to take an existing house. Maybe you've got a garage or an accessory building where you might be able to create a housing unit through through an accessory dwelling unit. This is something that is being done in many, many communities across the state. We've done a lot of research and uh you know, whether it's been on Cape Cod or in in, uh, in California or, you know, just really across the, across the country, we're seeing accessory apartments as one way of increasing the the, the affordable housing stock. So, you know, the, the, the really the, the, the question is, what's the correct role for state government to be able to assist with accessory dwellings? Well, you know, first of all, here in New York State, you know, local zoning decisions, local land use decisions are made by local governments. They're made by the local towns and the local villages. Every town, every village has their local zoning ordinance. They decide what, what uses are legal, what is permitted, what is prohibited. We have the local planning boards, uh, architectural review board, zoning board of appeals. So ultimately, you know, they do their local comprehensive plans. They decide what the pattern of development should be. And they make those decisions with regard to, you know, what, whether accessory apartments should be permitted and where they should be permitted. So, you know, we're not trying to take away local decision making. Those are things that local towns should, should be and villages should be doing. In my home village of Sag Harbor, uh, the village of Sag Harbor just enacted a, a whole series of new local laws to try to promote affordable housing. Accessory apartments were at, at the core of that. Sag Harbor is largely developed. There's not a lot of vacant land. They identified accessory apartments as a way that where perhaps they could provide affordable housing opportunities. So those decisions get made locally. Where I felt the state could could be of assistance to local governments and to the local community is by providing incentives. Because even in places where uh, accessory dwellings, accessory apartments are legal, oftentimes uh, property owners won't avail themselves of, of the opportunity. Um, you know, maybe they don't want to spend the money on an architect or they're afraid that, that you know, if they if they get, go and get a building permit, their, their taxes are, are going to be reassessed yeah. and they're going to be increased or, uh, you know, they don't want to pay for a lawyer, uh, all, all sorts of things that, that that might be impediments, not just whether or not they're legal. So, you know, it was my feeling that and what has happened in other communities is that the state could be providing incentives and those incentives that are in my legislation that I hope, you know, we got introduced this year that I hope will we'll get introduced, uh, not to get introduced, just uh, introduced, but will get enacted in the session next year was, was really a series of incentives. One was a capital fund to provide um, forgivable loans to people that want to build a, uh, an accessory apartment. One of the uh, 
one of the biggest impediments is, and you know, if you're going to modify an existing dwelling or modify an accessory building, you know, it might cost you uh, 100000 $150,000 to be able to do that. And that, that initial capital investment might be an impediment. Uh, my bill would provide up to $75,000 uh, in, in capital funds for someone who wants to build a, uh, an accessory dwelling. And if they keep, a little, keep it affordable for a 20-year period, at the end of that 20 years, Instead of being a loan, it would be a grant. So number one, it would provide capital funding to do the, the accessory dwelling. And if they keep it affordable uh, in, in, in the affordable housing stock, that loan would be forgiven. So can I interrupt uh, for a second? Because you brought up an interesting point. What, ha what happens if you sell the property, you know, five years from when you build the accessory? Yeah, dwelling? so it would run with the land. So if the oh. subsequent, if the, you know, if the subsequent seller um, you know, wants to keep it affordable and wants to maintain it, they would certainly be able to, to you know, to continue that with that program. So it would run with the land. Um, the other incentives other than the capital fund that would provide construction funding are some tax incentives. And um, the uh, one would be the a property tax incentive. So as I said, you know, if you make improvements to your property, you know, to make it a, a provide for an accessory dwelling, uh, it could increase your property taxes. And uh, what this legislation would do would be allow the towns to keep the taxes frozen at the current level. So there wouldn't be a disincentive through a property tax increase to provide. And again, you'd have to keep it affordable. You'd have to meet the rent guidelines to be able to do it. And the same thing with an income tax credit. So that if you keep the property affordable, uh, you, a certain amount of the revenue and the, the income that you generate, uh, you would be able to uh, you know, get a tax credit and, and uh, reduce your income taxes. So between a, you know, uh, a capital fund to help you build the accessory apartment and some tax incentives to make sure your property taxes don't go up and to provide some incentives for the income that you might be generated, you know, in other places, most notably Cape Cod, you know, they've had great success in some of the communities up there in, in creating new units for affordable housing. And, you know, we need the we need affordable housing desperately out here, John. You know, my my good friend, Joe Shaw, who is the editor over there at the at the uh, Southampton Press, you know, they have those express sessions where they talk about various issues and what he what he says and it, what is true is every issue they discuss ultimately comes back to affordable housing. Mm. If you're talking about being able to get employees at, you know, whether it's teachers at the school, nurser, nurses at the hospital or just people to work in, you know, in, in the local businesses here. If they can't if people can't afford to live here, you can't find employees. You know, if it's traffic, well, people can't afford to live here. They live further west. And that's why we have you know, such incredible traffic with people coming, driving to work here. Or if you're talking about emergency services for fire departments or ambulance, the ambulance services, if people can't afford to work here, you know, you're, you're having trouble recruiting and retaining people for our emergency services. It all seems to come back to affordable housing. So you know, accessory apartments are one tool to try to address that. And by providing incentives, the state providing incentives 
is a way of encouraging people locally, I think, and for the local towns, you know, to approve accessory dwellings and hopefully, you know, provide some some uh, affordable housing opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be here without having to build great big new uh, housing developments with right. 50 units or 80 units where it seems any big development is always going to engender some degree of opposition out there. So, you know, an accessory apartment, you know, in one neighborhood, another one in another neighborhood, and they, you know, they add up and uh, the community still looks the same, but suddenly you have the opportunity for uh, a number of, of an increase in the housing inventory that maybe can keep local residents here, keep local families here, so that uh, you know people can both live and work in the same community. You know, I recently had on uh, uh, somebody that had been in contact with you, a guest that I had, and he came up with this unique idea of uh, concerning uh, affordable housing. Basically, he was saying that if investors uh, bought four bedroom houses and reconfigured them to have ensuite bedrooms, uh, the thought would be that they, it would be shared housing with privacy and a shared kitchen, which is also perfect for millennials. It's almost like going back to, to the college days. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, first of all, I, I think the problem is of such a magnitude that we have to think outside the box and look at those kinds of opportunities. In particular, you know, that model might work great for employee housing where, you know, you've got a larger, you know, employer and, and uh, you know, I, I look at Sag Harbor, Bay Street Theater, they have to hire people and, you know, they need right. to be able to house people. And, you know, that kind of style of housing might work perfectly for them. So, you know, you know, again, the state could, could provide some of the financial incentives for that. But ultimately, the decisions about allowing different housing types were, would be decisions that would have to be made locally by the towns and villages. Uh, but, yeah, I think we have to think outside of the box. And, you know, I, I thought that that particular and I remember uh, having that discussion with uh, uh, what I guess one of our mutual acquaintances. Exactly. And, 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 it, and it struck me that, you know, in particular for. Uh, you know, for employee housing, where a particular business is looking to hire people and, you know, that it's kind of a, uh, you know, it, it, it's not a dormitory. It's still more of a, of a residential setting, but where, you know, you've got people working together, maybe setting up a situation where they're, they can live together also. And one employer, you know, can provide that kind of housing. It, you know, it makes sense to me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I just recently had a listing that went very quickly and a number of the potential buyers that came to see the property, and it was in the uh, million dollar range, were owners, like uh, owners of uh, restaurants and owners of um, landscaping businesses. And exactly the same thing you're talking about. They were looking for housing because they can't get help. Yeah. And you're seeing that more and more. You know, it used to be just big employers. You'd see it in agricultural housing. You'd see it in uh, the hospitality industry. Those, you know, the hotels, motels, restaurants where they would, uh, you know, they might come together and look for housing for their employees. But now, you know, you're getting, you know, school districts are talking about it. The hospital's talking about it. Uh, and I think it is something that, you know, if you want to hire employees, part of your your employee package is, is going to be housing if you're going to be able to attract people to come here, because this is not an easy place to find a place to live and it's not cheap. So, you know, kind of 
part of, of your, uh, you know, your employee package of, you know, it's, it's not just salary, but it's also housing. So, you know, again, I think we're going to have to be creative. You got to think outside of the box. And those are the kinds of things where, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be, you know, your traditional housing developments that, that, that solve this problem. Right. So Fred, um, how can somebody get in touch with you? They had some more questions. Well, sure. I can always be reached on the phone. You can call my office at 631-537-2583. Or you can email us at thielef, T-H-I-E-L-E-F, at nyassembly.gov. Fantastic. Assemblyman Fred Thiel, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life. Broadcasting here in the vibrant village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island. If you'd like to hear this program again or other podcasts, go to WLIW slash radio slash real life. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, be sure to have an awesome journey. You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.